This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. Welcome to our special post-event coverage from our Living with Wildlife conference in Toronto. Listen through and hear from some of our favorite speakers and what they had to say about living with wildlife. Donna Doyle of the town of Oakville. So Oakville, as I mentioned, it's about half an hour or so west of Toronto. Uh, We're on the shores of Lake Ontario. We're a medium-sized municipality, about 187,000 people. We've got a lot of uh, green space. We've got three creeks. We've got the lake. Uh, We've got extensive parks and trail system. We've got a lot of wildlife. These are all pictures taken from Oakville. So you can see we've got got actually a number of species at risk there. We've got uh, a lot of interesting sorts of things in Oakville. So <clears throat> we, uh, we definitely have a lot worth protecting. Uh, for staffing, just to let people know who are interested, uh, we do have a centralized approach to environmental management at the town. We have a core group, uh, the Environmental Policy Department, of four full-time staff with a director. So each of those four people takes on a different, uh, I guess, portfolio of environmental programs. Mine is monitoring some of our major, uh, we've got an environmental strategic plan, so I look after that. And I just kind of explain, I say I take care of anything. If it's alive, it's probably me. So plants, animals, invasive species, natural heritage systems, and of course wildlife. So why a wildlife strategy? Um, I think over the years it's becoming increasingly important that, uh, well, municipalities need to be involved. So as Leslie mentioned, there is an increasing uh, amount of public interest in wildlife. We're finding a lot more uh, residents are engaged on both sides of the, of the I guess, fence. Uh, we do have a lot that are very interested, very uh, want to know more, they want to be engaged. There's also the other side that, you know, perhaps, uh, as she mentioned, there's a lot of conflict issues going on, so they just want them to be out of the way. Uh, so we have to balance those two things. We have to bring education into it. We have to address those <clears throat> interests. So having a wildlife strategy helps address that. Uh, clarity for residents and staff. Uh, before we had a wildlife strategy in, it was always finger pointing. Something came up. Uh, so instead of having a proper response, we would spend so much time spinning our wheels. Well, it's the MNR. It's the region. It's the Humane Society. It's the Conservation Authority. And residents would just be really frustrated also staff because it wasted a lot of our time and a lot of our efforts. Um, Conflict reduction, if you've got a strategy in place, it helps set out clear parameters about what you will and won't do. Uh, It helps uh, provide a a base for an education program so residents are aware. They're not calling and thinking you haven't thought about it. They know that, you know, maybe they might not like the answer, but there's a reason for it. Uh, Legislative and regulatory issues, this is a big one. Before, you know, it was, again, with that finger pointing, whose problem is it? Um, wildlife is a really gray area. You've got all sorts of people and organizations and levels of government involved, and but at the same time, nobody's really involved. So it's a gray area a lot of the time. And I think the Ministry of Natural Resources has sort of been the at least perceived go-to over the years, but for a number of reasons, they've unfortunately had uh, a lot of cutbacks, so they've had to draw a lot of uh, resources out. I think MNR is probably more, uh, I guess, accustomed to dealing with rural issues. We're becoming increasingly urbanized and 
a lot of the wildlife issues that are coming up are a little bit out of the scope that is now probably traditionally the purview of the MNR. Um, there's also issues with, uh, so there's that gap. We also have legislation that is saying whose responsibility is Fish and Wildlife Act, basically nuisance wildlife, is the responsibility of whoever the property owner is and where that animal is. Well, that makes it rather difficult, wildlife moves, so what's my issue in one minute becomes somebody else's issue the next minute. So how do you manage that? And as one of the major, well, the major landowner in the town, municipalities, it's their responsibility then, if you look at that uh, sort of from a very black and white point of view. Um, <clears throat> other things that are starting to, to change with legislation is the um, Species at Risk Act. So there's been, or the Endangered Species Act, sorry. That's the provincial uh, legislation that uh, regulates what you can and can't do when you have endangered species. It, uh, with some of the regulation changes, where the MNR, conservation authorities, might have been more involved with allowing you to do things, so they would review things, you would have to apply to get permits to do anything. Now they've gone to almost a self-regulation uh, process in a lot of cases, which means that it's up to the municipality or whoever the proponent is for doing development or changing habitat. It's up to you to make sure that you're doing the right things. You submit saying what you're doing, and then you might get or audited later. So the problem with that is, is that there's a lot less eyes on the street. So for a municipality, if we don't know what we're doing and we get caught doing something wrong, it does not look good. We do not want to have fines. We do not want to be advertised that we've done something to endanger species. <clears throat> uh, more effective use of resources. Again, we were spending so much time dealing with issues with no clear uh, process. So this is a much better way to manage that. And of course, ecological and biodiversity concerns. I think everyone, I don't have to go into that too much. Uh, from squirrels right up to endangered species. You have to look after what you've got, and it's becoming more and more of an issue with different threats that are coming in with climate change, uh, development, so we want to protect our wildlife. So some of our key initiatives, uh, I think one of the most important components of a wildlife strategy is to realize outreach and education really is the cornerstone of things. Um, Again, sometimes you might not like what the answers are, uh, depending on what you're looking at, but if you're using, uh, you know, well-researched well information and you present it clearly and logically, a lot of the time people are, are able to understand that. And you can also, you know what you're dealing with. Um, I know, for example, uh, you know, even with coyotes, for example. Uh, the first thing that you quite often get in the people that are well-meaning, well, why can't they just take them all and put them in Algonquin Park? Like, we're going to round them up and, come on, guys, there's a bus going, so we're going to ship you off. Um, it doesn't happen that way. And so when people understand, you can explain, well, you can't move them, so there's, I'm sure, I won't go into the details, but yeah, you can't just pick them up and take them out. Um, killing them, or even removing them, whatever means, uh, you end up getting uh, a more unstable population, so we explain when you get, uh, you know, stable breeding pairs, you get a more uh, stable territory. They're not going to be taking as many risks. They're not going to be as uh, creating as many conflict situations. Uh, they also don't reproduce as quickly. They have their, their territory, so it's good to keep that in. Uh, and if there's habitat, they will come back. So you're not going to get rid of anything, you, which means that you have to adapt to your behavior and understand that there are certain things. I always say, you know, just because there's cars on the road, that can kill you, which does a lot more damage than any wildlife, 
um, we're not going to get rid of all of our cars and our roads. You don't say, yeah, we're just not going to have them in our community anymore. You can't do that. You just learn to look both ways before you cross the road. You learn to be more careful. You learn to adapt your behavior so that you can have both at the same place at the same time. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 416-750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Millions of animals are killed for their fur each year in Canada. You can help stop the cruelty. Join the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals today and be the voice for those who can't speak for themselves. Find out more at furbearerdefenders.com. This is Defender Radio. We're back with more highlights from our 2014 Living with Wildlife Conference. Mike McIntosh of Bear With Us Rehabilitation. So just a bit of background. I started uh, an organization called Bear With Us in 1992. I approached the Ministry of Natural Resources in the Bridge office in 91 and told them what I'd like to do. And they graciously uh, listened to me and allowed it to happen, although I think probably a few rolled their eyes, but I don't blame them. But since then, um, I've uh, spent a lot of time watching bears in the wild, as well as bears that might come into the center for rehabilitation. The important thing with bears are that if they get used to people, they don't become a danger to the people. People more likely become a danger to them. And the two bears you just saw are former circus bears, so they're permanent residents of Bear With Us. And that's Yogi, he's a male, former circus bear from the UK, and he'll be 26 this January. The pretty lady you just saw before him was Molly, she'll be 29 this January, she's been at Bear With Us 20 years on December the 9th. So is that an old bear? Not really. However, if that was a wild bear, it'd be an old bear. I'll talk about that in a minute. So over the years, uh, the enclosure has been made and moved back into a forested area where there's no chance of human activity interfering with the orphan bear cubs to make them complacent or used to 
demons or people in general. And one thing about bear behavior that's kind of unique and that applies to the real rehabilitation process as well is that a bear cub and bears in general are afraid of anything they don't understand. So if they don't know what it is, they tend to run. And a mother bear with her cubs, if they see another bear, the cubs will tend to run or climb a tree. So as a rehabilitator, if those bear cubs only see one or two caregivers and that's all, they tend to run from anybody else who may approach the enclosure. This keeps them wild, helps keep them safe when they return to the wild. But that same information applies to when it comes to coexistence. So what I mean is that if a bear is coming into a town and finding your bird feeders full of bird seed, or all your excess food on the deck in a garbage bag, and it gets to feed on them, and it wanders through the neighborhood and people don't offer any resistance, that bear becomes used to human activity. And that's what some like to call a nuisance bear. I prefer to refer to it as human bear conflict because the real nuisance is not the bear. Almost every bear that has arrived to bear with us in the last 20 years has arrived there because of human activity. And this varies from hunting injury, hunting orphans, bears injured on the road, mother bears killed on the road, cubs orphaned, um, and the list goes on, but almost always it's to do with something we do as people. One example, a couple years ago, I received a little cub, four and a half pounds, some guys were ATVing on a trail. Mother bear ran across the trail. Two of the cubs made it, the other one ran headlong into the ATV tire, knocked him out cold. But left the bear cub there for a day. Mom didn't come back. Why didn't she come back? Because bears are so afraid of people in general that the mother bear will keep on going rather than come back and risk herself or the rest of her family with all the human activity because there's ATVs and people buzzing around there full time. So these men picked up the bear cub and uh, met me on the road. The uh, interesting part of the story is too for some is that uh, both these guys are bear hunters. But out of season, they didn't want to see this cub perish on the trail. And of course, as uh, some of us know that bears are not born knowing how to be bears. So when the mother gives birth to them in January, there's no late birth like May or June. It's January. If a late birth happens in the bear world, it might be the first week of February, depending on geographical location. But January is by far the most common uh, month of birth for bears, especially bears in the Northern Hemisphere. So when those bear cubs are born, they don't know what being a bear is. They're a lot like a person. They're intelligent, they have cognitive thought, and they run very little on instinct. So they need to know what they should eat. And a mother bear teaches them by example for the first 18 months of their life. Can't really teach them by example 100% at a rehab center, but we can offer them food that they would find in the wild and release them when they have enough body mass and fat that they have a good chance to find that food and sort things out and survive on their own. The advantage is that they've had so much food that they're usually at least twice the weight of bear cub that would be at the same age in the wild when it parts from its mother. This slide I had in the slideshow in 1997. I took it out because it was an old slide. 
put it back in for good reason. This bear was a nuisance bear, so we would call him. He was uh, live trapped by myself here in the Rosso, and uh, he was a nuisance for good reason in August. He was thin, coat was dull, and he was pretty sick with an infection because he had an arrowhead stuck in his neck. So we took the arrowhead out, gave him a shot of penicillin, kept him for two days, and released him again. Very close to where we found him, what was an ear tech. So this is 1997 in August, and I forgot about him until last October. He was shot by a hunter 16 years later. So this bear was a large bear when he was live trapped in 97. 16 years later, he was shot by a hunter. The difference is he's still a big bear, quite a large bear according to the uh, MNR personnel I talked to, but old age had worn his teeth down. So that's a sign that he's an old bear. But he's in good shape. So unfortunately, he didn't really live to die of old age. And according to Dr. Lynn Rogers of Minnesota, in Minnesota, 97% of the bears are shot by hunters. Another 1 to 2% are either killed as nuisances by roadkill or poached. So maybe 1, 1%, 1.5% may die of old age. And it's probably not a whole lot different in Ontario. Last year, Minnesota, in July, a female bear who'd been radio-collared since she was a young bear died of natural causes at the age of 39 and a half. So I give you an idea how long they can live without human interference. And a whole lot of luck because where do you go now without, well, without finding human interference? Because we're kind of everywhere, aren't we? The reality is that we as human beings are getting higher in population and moving into the bush, making more roads, more trails probably not going to stop. So we need to become more responsible in how we deal with indigenous wildlife, no matter what it is. And we need to realize that if the moose population is dropping, um, it's not because of the bears or the wolves look inward. The, you know, the political lobbying that goes to increase moose tags sometimes has certain districts knowingly giving more tags than they should because they're trying to appease the people doing the lobbying. And uh, there's also other things affecting them. It's brainworm from deer and, and winter ticks, which can kill them because of hypothermia and, and other things. So um, I said earlier at the beginning that a young bear is born not knowing how to be a bear. In a Gonquin Park, there's a population of bears learned how to fish the suckers in the springtime. That's because one month the bear taught her cubs, or figured out how to do it, taught it to her cubs, and passed on from generation to generation. That doesn't mean the odd bear won't find out that in May, Deer are giving birth to fawns or moose giving birth to calves, and they're easy to find and kill. But that wouldn't be the majority of the population. More presentations can be heard, seen, or read about at furbeardefenders.com. Thank you for all of the help from our supporters, sponsors, and volunteers. We'll see you next year for the 2015 Living with Wildlife Conference.